So welcome to our next episode of the Simulcast Journal Club podcast. And I'm joined here again with Ben. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. It's nice to be back. Been looking forward to it. Another fabulous month. We're going to go through the article that we've had over the last month up on the blog for discussion, and then we'll be having a bit of a look at two or three of the latest articles around in the literature. So, Ben, why don't you kick us off, give us an idea about what we did this month and what people had to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, this month we discussed a really seminal paper, which is quite exciting. It's uh, it's uh, called There's No Such Thing as Non-Judgmental Debriefing, A Theory and Method for Debriefing with Good Judgment. And it's by Jenny Rudolph, Robert Simon, uh, Ronald Dufresne, and uh, Daniel Raymer. And it was published uh, back in the spring edition of Simulation in Healthcare in 2006. So, it's definitely one of the older papers that we've looked at. But in it, the authors report on, I'm going to quote them, their experience with an approach to debriefing that emphasizes disclosing instructors' judgments and eliciting trainees' assumptions about the situation and their reasons for acting as they did. And in doing so, when they published this paper, it was a really game-changing moment for the world of simulation and education because it brought in the concepts of advocacy and inquiry and debriefing with good judgment. So in terms of giving a little quick overview of this article, which is, I have to say, I found it a little bit more daunting trying to summarize this paper than I have in the past. Um, but the article begins by arguing that a person's underlying assumptions or frames will influence their actions, and that in turn will lead to finite clinical results. So they advocate that mistakes are often the result of seemingly rational actions by people and that they can be better understood by exploring that candidate's underlying assumptions around their decision. And then the article then highlights two common styles of medical teaching or debriefing, which most people would be able to recognize in their practice. And they describe those as judgmental debriefing, which is essentially where the instructor makes a judgment about what the candidate's mistakes were and corrects them. And that could potentially involve some derogatory statements or learner shame, but it does have the bonus that there's absolute clarity about what the instructor's concerns and advice is. And then they highlight non-judgmental debriefing, where they talk about an instructor who might want to avoid harsh criticism by applying kind of the old shit sandwich style approach of compliment criticism compliment, or by employing a Socratic approach by asking some guess what I'm thinking questions, but without actually acknowledging the mistakes that might have happened in a scenario. And they highlight that that can potentially imply that mistakes shouldn't be acknowledged since the instructor themselves is role modeling that behavior. So the article then offers a solution to the failures of those two previous debriefing styles with a new approach, which is debriefing with good judgment. And in, a, in essence, the debriefing with good judgment frees an instructor to express their concerns about learner actions by using advocacy and inquiry. And in doing so, they can raise their concerns for honest discussion, and they can also role model that it's socially acceptable to discuss those errors. They can provide their expert opinion in a clear manner but also from a stance of genuine curiosity about what the learner's mindset has been, approach that problem in a manner of it's more of a kind of trying to puzzle things out rather than blame people for what's going on. It also allows them to explore that learner's underlying frames and the decision-making pathways they've gone to. And then they can actively problem-solve with the group some alternate frames and actions that might lead to improved patient outcomes in, in the future. And while this paper has essentially been disseminated to the point that it's often considered best practice for debriefing, I think my impression is that at the time the paper came out, this was some pretty revolutionary stuff. And it remains so for a lot of our new medical educators reading the paper for the first time. And as it was for a number of our bloggers who kind of recalled the first moment they'd read their paper and described this light switch moment for them. 
I'd have to say, Vic, we haven't really had another paper where I felt that we've elicited such a, a warm and almost joyful response from people on Twitter and on the blog about their experience with an academic article. Yes, I think warm and joyful when you read the concept and you think this is going to be revolutionary. And, and I think your synopsis is actually extremely good. It's, it's about having that revelation that you can stop talking about what happened in the scenario and start getting down to the important stuff, which is the underlying understanding behaviors and thoughts that led to the observation behavior. Unfortunately, sometimes the joy was a little bit then gave way to frustration as then we tried to do this wonderful technique. Yeah, absolutely. So when we uh, people identify with our bloggers over the course of this month, which is a really fascinating discussion that's well worth logging on and reading, there was quite an extensive part of that discussion regarding people's challenges that they had with debriefing with good judgment. And a lot of people identifying that while they agreed with it in theory, actually practicing it and doing it in a smooth and natural manner was particularly challenging. So some of the group discussed how they found it really hard to move away from guess what I'm thinking questions, having trouble kind of overcoming internal conflict avoidance when they were delivering feedback, even though they knew it was the right thing to do. And having that experience of having debriefer paralysis where you're, where you're so busy trying to construct a perfect advocacy and inquiry question that you're not actually able to say what you're meaning to say. And we also explored a little bit some differences in cultural conversational style, which I thought was really interesting about how uh, maybe some of the phrasing that we've been traditionally taught from American sources actually can sometimes sound a little bit more unnatural if you're from a different cultural background. So, yeah, so I guess from there as a group, we had a really fascinating chat with Adam Chang as well, who um, helped us workshop some solutions to a number of those problems. And some of the group came up with solutions such as, you know, the fact that simple things like practice and familiarity with the technique makes it a lot smoother. Using a general debriefing structure to fall back on can make you a bit more confident and make the whole thing a bit easier. And also really freeing ourselves from, from focusing less on crafting the perfect advocacy and inquiry question and instead just focusing on transparency. Uh, Chris Cropsey is one of our commenters put it, uh, I'm just going to quote him. He said, I think the real power of AI is not the language, but the curiosity of it. And I find that the times when I can genuinely get curious about trainees thinking, the words just sort of happen. I thought that was a beautiful way of kind of freeing you up from being forced into a particular structure and more bringing it back to the, the heart and the key of the philosophy at hand. That's right. And I think whenever it's difficult, that return to, hang on, what am I really curious about? And if there isn't anything, then you shouldn't be asking an AI question. You should be using a different technique like a directive feedback. Mm. So I agree. And I think uh, Adam's contribution, as per usual, was beautiful and structured. And I think it's worth going to the blog to have a look at that summary that he's made as well because it's really so because this was such a seminal paper we did bring in the big guns with adam chang this uh month and if people don't know he's a director of research and development at the kid sim simulation program at alberta children's hospital uh, he's the associate and associate professor in the department of pediatrics there at the university of calgary and basically he's pretty much the dumbledore of simulation research in a lot of ways um if there were some harry potter chocolate frog clouds for simulation educators he'd definitely have his face on there somewhere so I was pretty pumped having him along um, and he was so kind both just participating in the blog discussion and, and as well as providing his expert commentary. So basically he's written that debriefing with good judgment is a highly effective approach to debriefing but doing it well takes practice, that debriefing scripts can help and actually being genuinely curious matters. He also explores that uncovering frames is one thing but identifying, understanding and addressing them is a whole different issue in itself. 
And he also points out that debriefing with good judgment takes time. Sometimes it's time that you don't have, but there is value in the fact that it can change institutional culture. I think he will be thrilled to know that he's got a Harry Potter reference out there too, then. <laughs> we can never have too many Harry Potter references. That's my That's philosophy right. anyway. All right. Well, another great month. Thank you for the wrap-up and just for everybody else to go to the blog and have a look at the detail if you're interested. So moving on now to a couple of the papers that we found floating around in the journals this month that we thought we might share with you out of interest. And the first one of these is entitled Simnovate, Simulation, Innovation and Education for Better Healthcare. And in fact, this is an editorial and a series of articles in last month's BMJ STEL, that's Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning, which is uh, one of the big four simulation journals. And I'm going to concentrate mainly on the editorial, but the whole series are in that edition of the journal. And I'd encourage people to have a look at it. And in fact, it is open access for a short period of time. The editorial is written by a fellow called Rajesh Agarwal. He's another Canadian. And he starts by explaining the context and current state of healthcare, patient safety and health professional education. And this is a backdrop that I guess we're all familiar with when we're working in healthcare and in particular when we're educating within it. And he defines Simnovate, and I'm going to directly quote from the paper, as a mission, a community and a partnership of passionate, driven and game-changing individuals who wish to see the change we can make together in the world right now, bringing together simulation, innovation and education for better health and care. Just to break that down and find out what that really means, over a 12-month period, four domain groups of international experts were formed to look at strategic agendas for simulation in these four areas. One was patient safety, one was medical technologies, global health, and then education. And in fact, these were an extremely diverse group of experts uh, who looked at these questions and then over the 12 months met and then finally came together in a summit where they put out white papers for each of these four areas looking at the integration of simulation with the domain areas. I was particularly interested in the patient safety paper because they do give a big shout out to in-situ simulation as one of the ways that simulation can be integrated with patient safety and quality improvement but perhaps the biggest lesson in there is really about having a model for proper governance and integration of simulation with the current processes by which we identify problems and improve our healthcare systems as well as teams. So I think that was quite an interesting thing. They do provide a framework for ideas about how we identify problems, how we quantify them, and then how we go about remedying them using simulation uh, based activities. Probably the other one I'd pull out is from the education article. And once again, this really focused engagement in learning. I guess we've really struggled to think about what are our hard outcomes in simulation and in education in particular. But this gives us a framework to think about that and suggests that we can start to look at ways of measuring engagement. And one was essentially to start describing simulation and they break it down into saying, talking about the scope, the modality and the environment as being the key factors when you're describing a simulation activity. And then they say, and I'm a believer in this, that the job of the simulation educator is really to pick the right combination of those things for what we're trying to achieve and then suggesting that learner engagement and hopefully 
effectiveness of the educational activity is related both to that simulation framework as well as then a fidelity framework. And they use a broad terminology for that physical, emotional, and conceptual fidelity. So I think this group of papers, Ben, is a conceptual read, but I think it is quite a good one. And I think for the average person like us doing our simulation, what it gives us is a few ideas about how to think about where our simulation sits, both as a quality improvement tool or as an educational tool, or if you're interested in those other areas, how it can be used to test medical technologies and systems. I think it also gives us some ideas about how we might branch out a little bit, shall we say, because sometimes we can get really stuck in the ways that we're doing things. And I think it truly does set a bit of an agenda about future work and future research in that area. So not a light read, but I think it's an important set of articles in this month's BMJ Stell. What did you think? Yeah, look, they're pretty heady reads, and I have to confess, um, sometimes I have trouble with these big vision papers that make huge aspirational statements, but they kind of lack a few of the specifics that I need at my level of learning. But there are a couple points that I found really interesting in there, particularly with the with the education paper where, they, where they've kind of reframed the role of the educator a little bit to me in terms of looking at learner engagement as a specific real focus. When they, they've got a quote for them where they said, education in any form is dependent on the engagement of the learner or student to be physically, mentally, and emotionally involved in learning. And I felt like through the article, they were really arguing that the concept of learner engagement could in some ways be an educator's main goal in the hope that, that you're then facilitating the learner on that journey from inexperience to mastery. And I thought the diagrams that you mentioned really did display some of those complex philosophical points quite beautifully. All right, moving then on to paper number two, and I chose this one obviously because it was a follow-up from our interview with Damien Shield a couple of months ago about simulation fellowships, and the title of the paper is Simulation Fellowship Programs, an International Survey of Program Directors, and this first author is Natal and a number of other authors, including Damien Shield, and this was published also last month in Academic Medicine, and just that's not a specific simulation journal, obviously, but a lot of work on education and training is published within it, and it's got a very high impact factor, so well done to those authors. Uh, Just to go through the paper briefly, it gives, I think, a nice background to understanding that as simulation has grown in popularity and complexity, obviously various training pathways have developed to support the people who are interested in being simulation educators. And Damien described this very well in our podcast episode that we did with him. But what it's meant is that is that there's a huge variation in the structure and content of programs. And that's, I guess, compounded by the fact that it's often from different professions, different specialties, different countries. And at the moment, at least, there's no accreditation processes, although there has, and I know Damien has been very involved with this, there is now an affinity group within the Society for Simulation in Healthcare, which is looking at some of those kinds of issues. So what they did in the paper is they asked the question, basically, what are people doing in these fellowship programs? They did a web-based survey. It was actually over 12 months, so plenty of persistence involved. The authors developed the survey and described their methods in the paper quite nicely, and they ended up with 50 open and closed questions, so quite a lot of detail in there. Um, I'm just going to go through a couple of the highlights in the results, but essentially they got 32 fellowship directors to answer the survey. 
Most were in the US and Canada, few from Australia and the UK, which probably just reflects their uh, background of the authors and who they knew in terms of doing those programs, because I certainly know there's a lot more of them in Australia than the few that they identified. Of these fellowship programs, they had 186 graduates, um, some up to 20 years ago. So some people have been doing this for quite a while. The programs themselves were very variable, as they had initially thought. Technologies that were used were very variable. Most of the programs were fairly new, although some had been around for 20 years. Most of the programs had started after 2010. Most of them were one year in length. And again, that's not too surprising when you think about some of the other fellowship programs that people do. Most of the candidates who did the fellowships were post their specialty training, and most of the ones they surveyed were in medicine. Uh, but there were a number of them who were in nursing and paramedics as well. Uh, not surprisingly, also, the biggest group was um emergency medicine and anesthesia, which again, I think probably selects a little bit the background of the authors, but also just the fact that simulation has been more common in those groups. My comment on this article, I think it's a really good read if you're thinking about setting up a simulation uh, fellowship. I think it's really good if you want to direct your own learning and see the kind of topics and areas that people learnt about. And for thinking about how to make these processes more consistent, what would be quality in a simulation fellowship? And there's some comments about that in the end. Uh, and my personal thought about the accreditation, I, I think we're a little way off and that's probably not inappropriate because you certainly want the innovation to be there. But the idea of having some standards, quality and transferability of qualifications is not such a bad idea. Uh, what did you think of the paper, Ben? Yeah, look, I, I think what I took from it is that there's a lack of consistency in sim fellowships around the world, but that actually when they broke it down, a lot of the targeted learning goals and themes appear to be fairly similar, and certainly the philosophies of a lot of these programs seem to be fairly similar. It was interesting. There were certainly plenty of similarities in what they were trying to achieve, and there weren't surprising things, understanding about patient safety, human factors, educational theory and principles and delivery, things about how to debrief. And there's a nice table there that summarizes that in the article. Mm. All right. So congratulations again to those authors, including Damien. And uh, Ben, you're going to tell us about a third paper. Yeah. So I think this was, I was reflecting on this a little bit that Vic and I both submitted some papers to each other that might be worthy of discussion this month. And Vic came in with the highbrow heady simnovate stuff that talked about is uh the, you know the new definitions of beauty and things that were pretty intense and then i submitted an article about fake vaginas and fake rectums <laughs> just to, to keep things classy but i did think so the paper i want to discuss uh, is we're published ahead of print and it's going to come out i think in june in simulation in healthcare and it's described, uh, it's titled An Innovative Approach Using Simulation to Teach Primary Care Gynecologic Procedures. Uh, and it's uh, by a series of authors with uh, Susan Hellyer uh, being the primary author. And uh, the article basically uh, describes how to make a simulated vagina for clinical skills teaching. And I thought it echoed on nicely from your podcast of this month where we talked about sometimes uh, you don't need to break the bank to make a really useful task trainer. So they made uh, this simulated vagina to practice gynecological procedures and they made it by taking some PVC piping that's been capped on one end with a removable sewer cap and then mounting it on a board for desktop use. And they then created a uterus and cervix from racquetballs. So they drilled a hole in one side of the racquetball and then they filled it up with red gelatin to simulate endometrial lining. And then they put a drug company demo uh, IUD inside 
and the drilled hole kind of becomes the os. So they then knotted a little red water balloon if they wanted to make a polyp. And then once that's done, they put all this... <laughs> It's it's kind of cute photo of all these little racquetball cervixes in a egg carton ready to go in the fridge because they need to go in there before the course to set the gelatin. But once the model's completed, uh, candidates use it to practice removing a polyp or removing an IUD and doing some endometrial sampling. And I thought it was just such a beautiful, uh, well-designed tool that was cheap, that was reusable, that's easy to clean, that doesn't have any expensive parts. The article itself does provide some validated data from their student surveys, which you know, confirms that the, the students of the course or the workshop that they were doing found it very useful. Uh, and as the study acknowledges, they were mostly novice learners, so their ability to assess the tool compared to act, like actual clinical skill translations very limited. But yeah, the take-home message for me was you don't have to spend thousands of bucks to make a really great task trainer if you've got some uh, arts and crafts skills and some imagination. I really enjoyed it. No, I agree. And the strength of the paper, it's got lots of pictures there. You have no doubt about how they did it. And I think anyone could then replicate that and do it for themselves. And I agree, it's it's, but it's targeted at novice learners. Uh, so I don't think they need to apologize for that in a sense, hmm. because this is a classic example of scaffolding learning, just getting those basic skills down pat before you've got the complications of having a patient that you need to communicate with, um, and a range of other uh, anatomic variants, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and again, just thinking about methodological, this is a technical report section of simulation in healthcare. And I often see those and they're just great resource, as you said, links in nicely with that uh, episode that we did. And uh, certainly for people who are teaching, and interestingly, this was a nursing group who actually published this. And you can see that they have a host of nursing practitioners who are doing these procedures. And uh, this is preparing them well, I think, mm. for, again, bang for buck. All right. Well, moving on then, Ben, do you, do you want to finish off by giving us a preview of the article for next month? Yeah, absolutely. So look, one thing that was interesting about this month's discussion that we just had was there wasn't a lot of critique on the paper itself, I think partly because it's just so warmly embraced. Um, but Jesse, at the, like at the 11th hour of this month, came in with a really perceptive comment where he sort of mentioned that potentially advocacy and inquiry has uh, – become almost the standard of care in debriefing circles, but it's taken a while for that information to fully disseminate. And, and he argued that maybe some of these authors have actually moved on and started exploring other tools to put in their, their tool belt that the rest of us maybe haven't started using yet. And so this month, we're going to look at not one, but two articles, and then in many ways, a pigeon pair, and they're on rapid cycle deliberate practice, which is, is kind of in a, a lot of ways, the opposite of traditional debriefing with good judgment. So it's very uh, clinical skills based and uh, very rapid, rapid, immediate feedback. So we're looking at two papers. First is entitled Structuring Feedback and Debriefing to Achieve Mastery Learning Goals by uh, Walter Epic et al. And uh, that's published in a Journal of Academic Medicine in 2015. And then we're going to look at uh, a paper that came out a bit before that in March 2014 in Resuscitation, uh, which is by Elizabeth Hunt, uh, and it's entitled Pediatric Resident Resuscitation Skills Improve After Rapid Cycle Deliberate Practice Training. 
So I'm looking forward to hearing from everyone about their experience with Rapid Cycle because I've got a sneaking suspicion that advocacy inquiry is still dominating the, dominating the landscape a lot. And I think that maybe this, you know, even though these papers have been published a couple of years ago, I'm not sure that those skills have translated into the mum and pop kind of simulation programs in a lot of hospitals. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because obviously we're all shaped by our own experience. But I, I get the idea there are a lot of people actually doing Rapid Cycle deliberate practice. Oh, good. And certainly that article from Betsy Hunt was a classic and Mm. she spoke at many simulation conferences. So I'm looking forward to seeing what people have got to say and uh, thank you for putting it forward to us, Ben. Yeah, cheers. I'll see you next month.